All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. I will read the first 10 verses of Romans 11, and that will be what we consider this morning. So Paul writes, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in that passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. As David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So last time we looked at Romans 10, we finished Romans chapter 10 by looking at verses 5 through 21. And that passage taught us four basic things. The first thing it taught us is that those who seek to earn a righteousness through the law will be judged then by the law. If you seek to stand before God on your own merits, be prepared to be judged by your own standard. Living by the law is a losing proposition because you have to live by the whole law. You have to live by all of it. You can't try to live by the law and only make 85% or 84% or 97%. It's not good enough. You need 100% law-keeping in order to be righteous by the law. The second thing that passage taught us is that, however, the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ is the antidote to self-righteousness. And he goes on where he talks about you don't have to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss. So in other words, you don't have to perform extraordinary feats to get this righteousness by faith. It is available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. The word is near you and whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The third thing it taught us is that this gospel message of good news, though, must be heard and believed. It's not enough just to to know that that's what you have to do to call upon the name of the Lord. You have to hear the message, you have to believe the message, and then you have to call on Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and that hearing, and that that includes a long chain of events in getting the gospel out, from all of which God providentially uh, controls, of course. But he goes on, he says, preachers must, must be sent. People need to hear. They need to believe. And then they need to call upon the name of the Lord. All of this, again, orchestrated by God's sovereign control. Then the fourth thing it taught us is that the problem with Israel didn't have anything to do with the message, didn't have anything to do with um, their inability to hear or inability to understand the message. The problem was they didn't heed the gospel message. It was presented to them. They didn't believe. They didn't listen. They heard the message. They didn't believe. 
They understood the message. They didn't believe. So in the end, Israel was responsible to believe and they refused to do so. That's, that's the whole point of Romans chapter 10 is to show you or to show us that even though God has a sovereign choice over who believes and who's hardened, that choice is worked out in time and space, as I like to say, in people having the responsibility to hear the message, believe the message, accept the message, and then trust in Christ for their salvation. That is, if you want to say, our part. Again, all of that, again, under God's sovereign control. So as we come now to Romans chapter 11, and as we head into this last chapter before we get to the practical application of the gospel, Paul continues to ask some questions to sort of move the dialogue along or to move the discussion along. And you see these questions in verses 1, 7, and 11. We're not going to get to 11 today, but you'll see these little questions that he asks, these rhetorical questions uh, using that um, technique of the diatribe to ask questions that were probably asked of him when he brought this message to people. And they still revolve around the issue of Israel's unbelief. In fact, all of Romans 9 through 11 deals with this basic fundamental question. Why have most Jews rejected the gospel and their Messiah? That's the question Paul is trying to deal with over, you know, in a large swath through these three chapters. And as I said when we started this section, Romans 9 through 11, he answers that question in three broad ways. The first one is through uh, Israel's unbelief as a result of God's sovereign choice in Romans 9. But Israel also had the responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. That's Romans chapter 10. And now as we head into Romans 11, we're going to start looking at this issue now through the lens of God's purpose for all of this. There's a purpose why Israel was hardened. There's a purpose why many of them didn't believe. Now, it's not going to be seen right away in these 10 verses that we're going to look at, but it kind of sets the table for what we'll see in verses 11 and going forward, how there was a purpose for Israel being hardened. It was a purpose for their unbelief, which was, in a sense, to bring the Gentiles in. That's the, the argument Paul is going to make throughout the remainder of chapter 11. But part of that purpose centers on God's choice of a remnant, which is what we will see in these verses, sort of a subset of the greater whole. So you have the entire people of Israel, but there has always been a faithful remnant, sometimes larger, sometimes smaller. But it has always been a faithful remnant of God's people throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of the church. And that's what we'll consider as we look at Romans 11, verses 1 through 10, and how it answers the question, has God rejected his people? That's the question Paul's going to start with. That's the question we're going to look at in these 10 verses. So now let us look at verses 1 through 10. And the first section here, verses 1 through 4, I'm putting under the heading, God cannot reject those whom he foreknew. So again, the answer to the question, has God rejected his people? Paul is eventually going to answer that no, because God cannot reject those whom he has foreknown. So we come back to that question Paul has asked before. He asked it in Romans 9, verse 6, when he asked, has the word of God failed? And in response to, in response to the fact that many Jews have rejected their Messiah, here in Romans 11, verse 1, Paul asks a much more straightforward question. Has God rejected his people? This massive unbelief in the Jewish people, has God just said, enough with you, I'm done with you, I'm going to start working with the Gentiles now. That's, 
the essence of the question as he says in verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now again, it would be very easy to conclude that God has rejected his people, right? I mean, many of them have not believed. It would just stand to reason, well, perhaps God has just said, okay, I'm done with them. I'm going to wipe my hands of them, sort of like how Pilate did when he, after he, you know, he, you know, examined Jesus. Okay, I, you know, I'm, you do with him what you will. I'm done with him. You know, maybe that's what God is saying to the Jews. Okay, I've had it. They're stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. I'm done with them. I'm going to start working with these Gentiles. They're a lot easier to work with. They're a lot nicer, you know, whatever the reason could be. But again, Paul rejects this position in the strongest possible terms. We've seen this before. God forbid, may it never be. Certainly not. However your translations put it. It is the strongest negative term he can think of. May it never happen. Now, one may ask, well, what's your proof, Paul? What do you present as evidence to refute the argument that God has rejected his people? Well, I present you, jury, with Exhibit A, Paul. (laughs) Paul is Exhibit A in the fact that God has not rejected his people. He says he's not rejected his people because I am his people. Now, we've seen Paul present his pedigree before, right? In Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. I think we may have looked at that at some point in, uh, in some past lessons. But he gives his sort of his, his background, his, his genealogy, his pedigree to show you how he is the, the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? And here he kind of gives a little shorthand version of it where he highlights two things. He says, look, I am a descendant of Abraham. Literally, the phrase is of the seed of Abraham. He is of Abraham's seed. So he is is descended from Abraham, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. But he also says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which was probably taken to be very important for Jews in those days. Because Benjamin, of all of Jacob's 12 sons, Benjamin was the only one who was born in the promised land. And moreover, Benjamin was the tribe from which Israel took their first king. Now, it wasn't the king of God's choosing, right? The king of God's choosing was David, who was of the tribe of Judah. But anyway, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was the first king chosen by the people. So he's, look, I'm, a, I'm a, of the seed of Abraham, and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You don't get much more Jew than me. Now, he was by no means the only Jewish believer, but he offers himself as living proof that God has not rejected his people. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent, but I'll, you know, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I'll come back. (laughs) Uh, This is a guided rabbit trail. It's not a random one that just came off to the top of my head here. But this goes to the heart of a pernicious lie that often gets attached to Reformed theology in general and covenant theology in particular. Now, one of the distinctive features of Reformed theology is our doctrine of the covenants. Okay, now, there are two main covenants. What are the main covenants? There you go. Covenant of grace, covenant of works. So there are two main covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace has many administrations throughout redemptive history, one of which is the Mosaic, is an administration of the covenant of grace. You've got the Noahic covenant, you've got the Abrahamic covenant, you've got the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then finally the new covenant, the fullest expression of the covenant of grace. 
All of them are the unfolding of the one covenant of grace throughout redemptive history. Now, covenant theology does not see a distinction in God's people. Okay, They do not see a distinction of Israel and the church as two distinct, separate people of God. It's one people of God. In the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the people of God was centered around a nation, the nation of Israel. Now, in the New Covenant or the New Testament, the people of God now is no longer centered on a nation. It is centered on the church or the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ and thus a part of the people of God, the one people of God. Now, people who hold to dispensationalism, at least some of them, often call covenant theology replacement theology. Okay, they'll say that the church has, you know, that covenant theology teaches the church has replaced Israel. So because covenant theology teaches that the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel are spiritually fulfilled in the church, they claim that covenant theology replaces Israel with the church. Now, this is not just a gross simplification, but it's an outright lie. We do not teach a replacement. Because it is clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that salvation was always for everyone. God is not just the God of the Jews. He is is the God of all of creation. He created all of mankind. Salvation goes out to everyone. Now, the nation of Israel was chosen by God to be that vehicle through whom salvation would then go out to the world. They were to be a light to the nations. You know, membership within the covenant people of Israel was to be part of the blessings that God bestowed upon his people. But salvation has always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, or at least the promise of Jesus Christ. When Abraham uh, believed and it was counted to him as righteous, he was not a Jew, (laughs) right? There were no Jewish people yet in, in the time of Abraham. He was still a pagan from the land of, you know, Chaldea. Or in the you know the city of Ur in the land of Chaldea, so he there were no Jewish people at the time he believed. But the nation of Israel that was sort of formed during the Mosaic Covenant became that vehicle through whom salvation came. Now in the New Testament, Jesus himself makes clear that salvation was also for everyone. In fact, his he starts his great commission by saying to his disciples, "Go therefore and make disciples of." All nations, everybody, all ethne, the, the, all, all the nations, all the ethnicities. In fact, Paul himself makes it even more clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. You don't need to turn there. You can jot the reference down. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16, where Paul writes, For he himself, this is Jesus Christ he's speaking of, he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing it in his flesh, the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself, again Jesus, might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So the whole point of the church is the combining of the people of Israel and the church. You're taking the two men, making them into one new man, which is the people of God. So rather than 
replacement theology, I like to think of it as an expansion theology. The people of Israel are being expanded to include all nations. And that dividing wall of the law has been abolished because Christ fulfilled it. And now everyone is able to come into the body of Christ by faith in Christ. So bottom line, God has not rejected his chosen people, Israel, and Reformed theology does not teach a doctrine of replacement. Okay, I'm back onto the path now. I've gone off the rabbit trail. I'm back on the main path now. See, it was a small, guided little tangent, but you know, I, I came back. So exhibit A in the, in the case against God not rejecting his people was Paul himself, but exhibit B, that God has not rejected his people, is his promises in his word which we see in verse 2 of chapter 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So again, God cannot reject those whom he foreknew. If you remember back when we looked at Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, we looked at the golden chain of salvation. And that language there of that passage is such that you can sort of shorten it to say, because it says, you know, those whom God foreknew, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. But you can, the way that language is structured, you can shorten it to say, those whom he foreknew, he also glorified. Because there's no loss along the way. It's, you've got this language of those whom he also, and that forms an unbreakable chain that moves one necessarily from foreknowledge all the way through the ordo salutis or the order of salvation all the way to glorification. So God cannot reject those whom he foreknew. And if he were able to do so, then that would make God what? A liar, right? And he's not a liar, right? But what does the word of God say? There are other passages we can look at. Uh, Again, you can jot these references down. I've got four of them. 1 Samuel 12, verse 22 says, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Now, this is in reference to, this is Samuel addressing the people of Israel after Israel had chosen Saul to be king. And Samuel says, you know, realize you've chosen, you've rejected God. Because God is your king, you've rejected God, and you've chosen Saul to be your king. But don't worry, God is not going to reject you. You've kind of rejected God in this choosing of Saul, but he will not abandon you on account of his great name. Or Psalm 94, verse 14. Again, for the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And then a couple of passages from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So he's like, look, if you can measure the heavens above and if you can search out all the depths below, then I'll reject my people. In other words, he's not going to reject his people. Okay, because the heavens are effectively vastly infinite and and we're still learning things, even how many thousands of years later from when this was written, you know, 4,000 years, 3,000 years later, we're still searching and finding new things and discovering new things. 
Or again in Jeremiah 33, verses 24 through 26. Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them? Thus they despise my people no longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Again, he's, when he says the covenant for day and night, that's pointing back to the covenant he made with Noah after the flood, where he says, you know, until you know, the end of the time, you know, daytime, nighttime, seed time, harvest will continue. So if that covenant can fall, then God will reject his people. But that covenant will not fall, neither will God reject his people. So that's exhibit B. God will not reject his people because of his promises and his word and his character. But then we see in verses 3 and 4, exhibit C, where God will not reject his people, and that is Elijah and the 7,000. Okay, in verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now here Paul is quoting from 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 10, 14, and 18. Now what happens in 1 Kings 19 takes place after, of course, what happens in 1 Kings 18. It's kind of amazing how that works out, right? 19 follows after 18. But in chapter 18, Elijah has this great victory on Mount Carmel against the priests of Baal. And it's just, you have this great showdown between Jehovah and Baal, right? In which Jehovah was overwhelmingly victorious, if you remember how the story goes, right? The priests of Baal wail day and, you know, they wail for hours and hours and hours to get their God to send fire down to consume the offering and nothing happened. And Elijah's in the background kind of mocking them. Maybe your God has stepped out. Maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he's sleeping. Who knows? Maybe you should go arouse him. Maybe then he'll come and, and take your offering. And then when that was all said and done, Elijah then says, okay, pour water all over the offering. Okay, now do it again. Now do it a third time. So it's completely drenched and water fills the trench. And then he calls on the name of the Lord and fire comes down and consumes everything. God was overwhelmingly victorious in this showdown between the true God and a false God which doesn't exist. And then, of course, the 400 priests of Baal were then slaughtered after that. But there was one small problem with all of this. The fact is that this great victory did not result in a revival amongst the people of God. Elijah had hoped that this one conflict, this one Setting where it's okay, it's Jehovah against Baal, and then now the people will see that Jehovah, he is God, and then they will turn back to him. That did not happen. Moreover, Ahab and Jezebel, his treacherous wife, rather than turning to the Lord, sought all the more to seek Elijah's life. So then Elijah becomes depressed and he flees to Horeb. So keep your finger in Romans 11 and turn to 1 Kings 19. So in 1 Kings 19, again, as um, you know, Jezebel says to the, to the messenger, you know, may, you know, may God do to me and more, you know, more so if I do not kill Elijah this day, but do not take his life. So Elijah flees. 
And he flees to Mount Horeb. And in verse 11, um, God says to Elijah, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord God said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Ebel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in this passage, again, Elijah is depressed. He's, he's weeping. He's sorrowful because... This great display of power did not result in a revival amongst God people, God's people. And then God sends him these messenger, you know, these sort of signs, you know, the, the strong wind, the earthquake, the fire, and he says the Lord was not in them. These great works of power, God was not in them. But this still small voice or this quiet whisper, that was where God was. And again, the idea being it's like, look, there's a small remnant. Okay, don't look for flashy things. Don't worry about all the big things. I'll take care of the big things. But God is in the small whisper here as well, in this small remnant that I have preserved. And that's the point. God has always preserved for himself a remnant. Let me turn back to Romans 11. So now Paul brings it back home to his time in the mid-first century in verses 5 and 6, where he says in verse 5, In the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And that phrase, in the same way, is Paul's way of saying that the days of Elijah were no different than the times in which Paul was currently living. The time of Elijah was a time of great apostasy in the nation of Israel. Ahab was the worst king, right? None before him were were any more wicked than he was. And of course, his, his wife, Jezebel, brought wholesale Baal worship into the land of Israel. Of course, this is the northern kingdom uh, after the, the days of the division in Jeroboam and Rehoboam's day. But the northern kingdom has never followed the Lord. I mean, ever since they split off, that was when Jeroboam set up these two golden calves, one at Bethel, one at Dan. And, and he's like, this, th- these are your gods. I'm very you know, familiar. Sounds like what Aaron said during the golden calf incident. So they've never really, you know, they've, they've turned away for a long time. And so great was the apostasy of Israel that God then raised up this champion, Elijah, to be his prophet. And Israel came to, uh, Elijah came to call Israel from their idolatry and apostasy back to covenant faithfulness and fidelity to Jehovah. 
And again, going back to that great clash on Mount Carmel, uh, this is what Elijah says to the people in, at the end of 1 Kings 18, where he says, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And again, as I said, I truly believe that Elijah thought so convincing would this display of raw divine power by the hand of the Lord be that the people would just flock back to Jehovah. And of course, Elijah is sent into a state of depression when that fails to come about. Well, Paul then says in the same way, he's equating those days to his days now in the first century. In the same way, Paul is saying that this apostolic period, post-resurrection, post-ascension, is very similar. Far more convincing than the display of God's power on Mark Carmel is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the wonders that he performed in his life, raising people from the dead, feeding multitudes with small loaves and fishes, uh, healing the sick, restoring the blind, restoring the deaf, all of these things. Yet a similar air of unbelief on the part of the Jewish people had manifested itself. And based on what Paul has written in Romans 9 and 10, he has a similar sorrow and anguish for Israel's unbelief. He feels, he knows, you know, he can be like Bill Clinton. He can say, I, I feel Elijah's pain. I know why he's, he felt that way, because I too feel this way. How can Israel reject their Messiah? But the good news is that just as in the days of Elijah, God has preserved for himself a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So God cannot be accused of rejecting his people if there has always been a remnant. And this remnant is a reality according to God's gracious gracious choice, or literally his choice of grace. And this calls to mind what Paul has been saying all throughout Romans, most recently in Romans chapter 10. This remnant of Jewish believers has been set apart, It has been chosen and has been preserved by grace. In fact, we see this grace on display in the book of Acts, in Acts 2.41 or 2.47 or or chapter 4, verse 4. In all of those occasions, you see thousands of people, mostly Jewish, in fact, maybe almost entirely Jewish, turning to Christ in faith at the preaching of the apostles. The first one, Acts 2.41 That's Pentecost Sunday when Peter preaches to the people. And then after his sermon is done, it says 3,000 turned and became believers. They joined the church. Later on in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, again at the preaching of Paul or Peter and and John, 5,000 more souls are converted. Thousands of Jews are being converted, born again by the Holy Spirit and coming to faith in their Messiah. Of course, this is all a testament to God's grace. But Paul goes on to say in verse 6, If it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That pretty much stands the reason, right? If, if it's by grace, it can't be of works. If it's of works, it can't be of grace. 
This is Paul's argument way back in Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. When you work and you receive a salary, you don't say, thank you for being so gracious to me. You're like, give me what I've earned, right? You know, give me my pay. I've worked hard all day, and now give me my pay. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited. It is accounted. That's an accounting term. It is credited as righteousness. So grace and works are antithetical. You cannot mix the two. And this was the problem we saw back in Romans chapter 10. The Jews thought they could be righteous by works of the law. So they rejected Jesus and they rejected the gospel of grace. As Paul says in chapter 10, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, who was Christ. And he goes on to say, if righteousness could be achieved by works of the law, then grace is no longer grace. It is null and void. It has been rendered useless. So it has to be by grace. It has to be by grace because God's sovereign choice of election is a choice of grace. Go back to Romans 9 when he chose uh, Jacob over Esau. What, what did Paul say? He chose Jacob over Esau before any of them had done anything right or wrong. In case you didn't get the picture with Ishmael and Isaac, that it was a choice of grace. He says, look, before they were even born, you had twins in the womb. I chose one over the other. Grace. Put it another way, if man contributes anything to his salvation, then even the smallest amount, then salvation is no longer by grace. Right? If God does 99% of the work of salvation, it doesn't matter because you're not saved. Right? God can do nine, He can start at the goal line and take you 99 yards to the other goal line and then stop at the one yard line. Are you saved? Not unless you cross that goal line. So if the last remaining 1% is of you, you're doing, that is the most important 1% of your salvation. doesn't matter the 99%. That 1% makes you saved. And if that's our doing, then it is not of grace. Okay, now looking at verses 7 through 10, the remnant is saved and the rest are hardened. So then Paul comes back with another question in verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So Paul's answer in verse 7 here kind of serves as a summary statement or a like a, a, a principal statement to what we have seen so far in Romans 9 through 11. Israel as a whole did not obtain what it was seeking, which was righteousness. Israel was seeking righteousness. They did not find it. Romans 9.31, they did not find what they were seeking. They were responsible to pursue righteousness by faith, but because they chose the path of works of the law, they failed then to find what they were looking for. So the reason why the bulk of the Jewish people did not obtain what they were looking for is, again, due to God's sovereign choice. He says here, the elect, those who were chosen, they obtained it. The rest, who were passed over, they were hardened. And I mentioned this earlier. It goes back to Romans 9.18. God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, what Paul is talking about here by hardened is a sort of a judicial hardening. It is a judicial response to unbelief. 
Again, consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. Um, Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. So in 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 4, Paul here is talking about himself and the other apostles as being ministers of a new covenant. And in verse 4, Paul writes, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone came with glory, that's the old covenant, the law, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even uh, fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Again, the new covenant, better than the old covenant. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Now, if you're like, what's going on here? This speaks back to when uh, Israel was in the desert. Moses was bringing the law to the people. And as he was in the presence of God on, on Mount Sinai receiving the law, it was sort of like his face kind of captured some glory of being in the presence of God. So when he returned to the people, his face was shining. But then when he was away from God, his face would start to fade away. He would put a veil over it, go back up on the mountain to receive more instruction, and the face would glow again. So that's what Paul's talking about here. So we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their mind, here's the important part, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So again, he's saying here, look, whenever the old covenant was read to the people of Israel, for the most part, a veil was covering them so they could not see, could not understand what was being said to them. And that veil had to be taken away in Christ. That is a form of hardening on the part of God. So unbelieving Jews have their minds hardened so they cannot pierce the veil that remains over their hearts when the Old Covenant is read. And the same thing here. God's judicial act of hardening is an act of judgment on Jewish unbelief. And to show that this is nothing new, Paul quotes from both Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10 in verse 8, where he says, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. So because of their unbelief and stubbornness, God judges them with blind eyes and deaf ears. Again, remember when Jesus started teaching in parables in Matthew 13, he started teaching in parables. Why do you think he did that? 
Why do you think Jesus began teaching in parables? A lot of people think he began teaching in parables to make things, to illustrate the kingdom of God so it would be easier to understand. That's not what Jesus said. In verse 13 of Matthew 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The parables were a form of judgment. It was a form of concealing the truth, because they would not receive the truth. They rejected the truth, and at the end of Matthew 12, the Pharisees tell Jesus, You cast out demons by by the prince of demons. In other words, you are demon-filled in order to cast out demons. And Jesus is like, enough of you. You're rejected. You're hardened. You will not see. You will not hear the, the, the secrets of the kingdom of God. The Jews have been blessed with so much advantage from God. We saw this in Romans 9 earlier. The, uh, the prophets, the covenants, the patriarchs, the Messiah. But even with all this, many pursued a righteousness through works of the law. And those whom God blesses, if they do not respond to that blessing, God will take away that which they have. Which is how Paul closes his passage. And again, quoting from Psalm 69 this time, he's taking a passage that speaks about David's enemies and applies it to those Jews who reject Jesus. Where he says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. It's like, look, if you're going to remain stubborn and hard-hearted and rejecting the gospel, then stay that way. May that be your permanent state. This is a very sobering passage. This passage continues uh, some very sober uh, teaching concerning the bulk of Israel. But it also contains a, a glimmer of hope. And that hope is that God has not rejected his people. And though many have rejected, there has always been and always will be a remnant who receive Christ by grace through faith. Now, as I said earlier, Romans 11 looks at Israel's unbelief through the lens of God's purpose, and we're going to see that next week, Lord willing. But we need to be thinking, this is the question that Paul's going to then take the rest of the way through Romans 11. Why has God allowed his chosen people to fall in unbelief? There's a purpose to that, and we'll see that next week, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday.